Thank you. Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order, please. Uh, I want to thank Special Representative Abrams and Senior Deputy Assistant Administrator Hodges for their service and for appearing here today to discuss the worsening crisis in Venezuela. It's hard to imagine a more pressing national security concern in the Western Hemisphere than the political, humanitarian, and economic crisis provoked by Maduro and his cronies in Venezuela. In the last seven years, Nicolas Maduro has dramatically uh, deepened relations with the most dangerous forces in the world, which were first established by his uh, predecessor, Hugo Chavez. On his watch, Cuba, Russia, China, Iran, transnational criminal organizations, and U.S.-designated foreign terrorist organizations have turned Venezuela into their playground. Their activities are intolerable security threats to the United States and the hemisphere at large, and prolong a humanitarian crisis provoked by the socialist policies of the regime. Nearly 5.2 million Venezuelans have fled their homeland, placing a huge burden on the neighboring countries that have generously accepted these refugees from Maduro's regime. 96% of those who have stayed behind live in poverty, with 80% facing extreme poverty. Chronic food shortages and a dysfunctional public health care system have condemned an entire generation to hunger and stunted growth. A series of unsuccessful attempts to restore freedom in the last year, compounded by Maduro's desires and ability to stay in power by perpetuating corruption and torture, have emboldened the regime and left democratic forces facing daunting challenges. President Trump's campaign of maximum pressure is a welcome improvement. We should, we should leave no stone unturned in support of the Venezuelan people's efforts to rid themselves of this evil. It is also appropriate to continue providing assistance to enable Venezuela's neighbors to help the millions of Venezuelan refugees that they are hosting. The international community, especially the European Union and Spain, must increase economic pressure on Maduro if they are serious about the return of democracy to Venezuela and the end of the humanitarian nightmare there. We must make clear to Maduro's mentors in Havana and Moscow that this game is over. I look forward to hearing from today's witnesses about the steps the U.S. government is taking to counter the malign influences in Venezuela. With that, I know our ranking member has strong feelings on this, and uh, I'll yield the floor to him. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for working with me on, on this hearing. I appreciate it. Uh, Mr. Abrams, you, you come before uh, the committee at an urgent moment for Venezuela, one with implications for the United States and our entire hemisphere. We face a critical moment for Venezuela's interim government as the Maduro regime seeks to consolidate a criminal dictatorship with a helping hand from Havana. This crisis directly affects U.S. national security interests and our geopolitical competitors, Russia and China and Iran, seek to undermine American influence. Moreover, the people of Venezuela continue suffering grave human rights abuses, a humanitarian catastrophe worsened by COVID-19 pandemic, and mass displacement across the hemisphere. As Venezuelans strive to, a struggle I should say, to survive and restore their democracy, legislative elections are scheduled this year. Not surprisingly, the Maduro regime has rigged every aspect of the electoral process, thereby ensuring increased instability and more widespread suffering. 
The evidence is already there. After two decades of U.S. investment in Colombia's security, we now see Colombian guerrillas operating openly across Venezuela in large swaths of ungoverned territory. They join a wide range of armed actors promoting and profiting from the drug trade, illegal gold mining, and human suffering. Most tragically, of course, is the daily suffering that Venezuelans endure. Femicide, sexual violence, and trafficking of Venezuelan women and girls are reportedly on the rise. Dramatic increases in maternal and infant mortality reflect the dire state of Venezuela's health system. And the World Food Program assessed in February that one-third of Venezuelans face moderate or severe food insecurity. Additionally, Maduro's brutal regime has perpetrated more state-sponsored murders, state-sponsored murders, than any Latin American government since the dirty wars of the 1970s and 80s. In the last two years, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights has reported over 8,000 extrajudicial killings by Maduro's security forces, as well as grotesque patterns of torture and rape. These conditions have forced more than 5.2 million Venezuelans to flee their country in search of protection and assistance. I traveled to Cucuta, Colombia a year ago, where I heard heart-wrenching stories from individuals fleeing the humanitarian tragedy in Venezuela. With the COVID-19 pandemic and related economic downturn converging on the crisis of Venezuelan refugees and migrants, the United States must mobilize international partners to further expand assistance and protection for the Venezuelan people. If the current trajectory continues, more Venezuelans will be displaced from their homes than the number of Syrians displaced during that devastating nearly decade-long conflict. Yet while other countries are generously hosting millions of Venezuelans, the Trump administration has ignored my repeated requests to grant temporary protected status to some 200,000 Venezuelans in the United States. It has turned away Venezuelan asylum seekers at our southern border. And that is absolutely unacceptable. The administration must change course. Through my Verdad Act last year, Democrats and Republicans, in concert with the administration, united in our recognition of interim President Juan Guaido. However, in June, President Trump stated that he did not think this decision to recognize President Guaido was, quote, very meaningful, sending the wrong signal to our allies and our adversaries. We must be purposeful and lead the formidable coalition we helped build to support President Guaido. So I expect to hear a strategy about how we will work with our partners to ensure that Maduro doesn't use fraudulent elections to strengthen his dictatorship. Moreover, with Maduro and his cronies facing charges in the United States for drug trafficking and graft, there should be no doubt about their criminal credentials. We are dealing with a massive law enforcement challenge in Venezuela. Never have so many in our hemisphere fallen victim to a cabal of criminals so willing to destroy their own country for the sole purpose of enriching themselves and avoiding justice. We must coordinate an international campaign to confront the regime's criminality, and I look forward to hearing from you, Special Representative, on what changes we will make to increase our chance of success in the next six months. And yes, I said changes. 
There has been bipartisan support for most of our sanctions and the $600 million in foreign assistance we have used for humanitarian aid, but Maduro remains entrenched in power, and humanitarian access into Venezuela is extremely limited. We cannot continue on the same course and expect to achieve different results. I fear the administration may very well have squandered a limited window of opportunity crafted by valiant Venezuelans, and I hope it's not too late to open that window again. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Uh, uh, those remarks are uh, well taken. I think uh, out of all the things that are going on in the Congress today that divides us, probably nothing brings us together more than uh, a sense that Maduro has to go and that, uh, that we're united, if not uh, universally, very close to universally in, uh, in that effort. So we're anxious to hear what, uh, what these uh, witnesses have to say. Today, I'm pleased to welcome to the committee U.S. Special Representative for Venezuela, Elliot Abrams, and Mr. Joshua Hodges, Senior Deputy Assistant Administrator for Latin America and the Caribbean at the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID. Mr. Abrams is a scholar and experienced foreign policy expert. He has served in two administrations and on, on the staff of Senators Henry Jackson and Dan Moynihan. He has written five books on American foreign policy and teaches on the subject at Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. Mr. Hodges oversees USAID programs in Latin America and the Caribbean. He previously served on the staff of Congressman Mike Johnson and Senator David Vitter of Louisiana at the Department of, National, of uh, Energy's Nash, National Nuclear Security Administration and the National Security Council in the White House. We'll start with Mr. Abrams. Mr. Abrams, the floor is yours. Your, your, mic, your microphone's not on, Ellie. It's very right, complicated. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez, members of the committee, Thank you for this opportunity to testify on our efforts in support of the Venezuelan people. This policy has, with broad bipartisan support, been successful in supporting the democratic opposition, maintaining a broad international coalition, and denying revenue to Maduro's brutal regime. But we have yet to see the convoking of free and fair presidential elections, nor do we see the conditions that would permit such elections. In January 2019, the U.S. was the first country to recognize interim president Juan Guaido. Since then, we, he has secured the support of nearly 60 countries. We remain steadfast in our support for interim president Guaido. We proposed a democratic transition framework for Venezuela as a path to establish a broadly acceptable transitional government to oversee free and fair presidential and parliamentary elections. We're prepared to work with all Venezuelans and with other nations to achieve this goal and to lift sanctions when the necessary conditions are met. I want to thank this committee and Congress for its support through legislation and funding. The U.S. is the single largest donor of humanitarian assistance for Venezuela. From 2017 to now, the U.S. has provided more than $856 million uh, to Venezuelans suffering inside Venezuela and in neighboring countries. And we should recognize uh, those that have welcomed 5 million Venezuelans, especially Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, for their continued support as well. Criminal dictatorships like Maduro's are hard to defeat. The Maduro regime's relentless attacks on dissidents and against 
Venezuela's last remaining democratic institution, the National Assembly, demonstrated its obsession with retaining power regardless of the cost to the nation and its people. In July, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, released two reports on human rights violations in Venezuela. She reported that Maduro and his thugs continue intimidation, repression, arbitrary detentions, torture, and murder. This includes 1,324 extrajudicial killings from January to May of this year. For more than two and a half years, the regime has unlawfully detained six U.S. oil executives. Tomeu Vadel, Alirio Zambrano, Jose Luis Zambrano, Gustavo Cardenas, Jorge Toledo, and Jose Angel Pereira. We were relieved to hear July 30th that Mr. Cardenas and Mr. Toledo were moved to house arrest. This is a positive first mm -hmm. step, and of course, we hope for more. The regime also continues to detain nearly 400 political prisoners, including military officers, medical professionals, journalists, dissident Chavista Nickmer Evans, Guaido's chief of staff, Roberto Marrero, National Assembly deputies, Juan Recasens, Gilbert Caro, Ismael Leon, Renzo Prieto, and Antonio Guerra, and labor rights activist Ruben Gonzalez. We remain concerned over foreign malign influence in Venezuela and the Maduro regime's collaboration with non-state armed groups such as the ELN and FARC. Illegal armed groups are forcibly recruiting vulnerable Venezuelan children into armed conflict, compelling many into forced labor. Cuba treats Venezuela as a colony, shipping food, medicine, diesel, and gasoline from Venezuela to Cuba, even as the Venezuelan people suffer shortages of all of them. Cuban security personnel surround Maduro. Cuban intelligence officers are embedded in the military. China helps the Maduro regime with cyber operations. Russian military aid and loans have helped the regime maintain its security forces. And now we're seeing a rekindling of the relationship with the world's worst state sponsor of terrorism, the Islamic Republic of Iran. Maduro's recent hijacking of the National Electoral Council and of the major democratic political parties foreshadow how the regime plans to take control of the National Assembly through fraudulent elections in December. On Sunday, 27 democratic political parties in Venezuela joined in unity to say they refused to participate in that farce. And I'm sure democracies around the world will also refuse to recognize such a fraud. We look forward to the day when free and fair elections are held, a new democratically elected government is in place, U.S. sanctions can then be lifted. We look forward to restoring once close Venezuela-U.S. relations, to helping Venezuelan migrants and refugees return to their beloved country, and to seeing Venezuela's children share in the beauty and bountiful natural wealth of their country. Mr. Chairman, Senator Menendez, thank you for inviting me here today and for your continuing interest and the strong bipartisan support this committee has shown toward the struggle for freedom in Venezuela. I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you, Mr. Abrams. Uh, Mr. Hodges. Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez, and distinguished members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity and honor to be here to testify on behalf of USAID. We are grateful for your bipartisan support for the response to the Venezuela regional crisis. 18 months ago, the Trump administration recognized Juan Guaido as the legitimate and legal interim president of Venezuela in accordance with the Venezuelan Constitution. As you know, this crisis has been manufactured by an inability to govern and rampant corruption, 
which has resulted in an economic collapse with severe humanitarian consequences and a culture of repression that the regime continues to use to jail, torture, and even murder the Venezuelan people. Today, the Guaido Interim Government and National Assembly continue to push forward despite very challenging circumstances, including the humanitarian and economic crisis, the illegitimate Maduro regime's radical oppression, and most recently, COVID-19. Because of these dire realities, more than 5.2 million Venezuelans have left home and relocated to neighboring countries, extending the crisis across borders. To address this crisis inside Venezuela and throughout the region, the United States Interagency is providing substantial, coordinated humanitarian and development assistance. Inside Venezuela, USAID's humanitarian assistance is saving lives through healthcare that stems the spread of infectious diseases, meals for vulnerable families, and vital water, sanitation, and hygiene supplies. A few tangible examples of this assistance include serving more than 1.4 million hot meals to vulnerable Venezuelans and delivering enough medical supplies to health facilities to help 160,000 people. In addition to the previous existing challenges, COVID-19 is exacerbating an already dire situation inside Venezuela. In response to the pandemic, USAID is providing COVID-19-related emergency assistance inside Venezuela and throughout the region. While our efforts are making an impact, Maduro has stood in the way of allowing more help to Venezuelans in their time of need by creating numerous obstacles and barriers for international NGOs. Humanitarian organizations face constant harassment from security personnel affiliated with Maduro, and the illegitimate regime continues to impede international expert staff from obtaining visas and registering certain organizations. Let me be clear. USAID condemns any efforts to intimidate or threaten humanitarian workers who are seeking to save lives. Throughout the region, USAID's priority is to support communities that are generously hosting Venezuelans in their time of great need, especially in Brazil, Colombia, Ecuador, and Peru. We are aiming to reach approximately 943,000 Venezuelan refugees, migrants in these countries with food assistance, health care, and clean water. While humanitarian assistance is saving lives, the agency recognizes a balanced mix of medium and long-term development assistance is also needed. Our regional development programming is aligned to help the help the receiving host country governments address areas impacted by the Venezuelan migration, such as education systems, healthcare, economic development, and vocational support, as well as government capacity building. Back inside Venezuela, we are using development assistance to support the interim government and the National Assembly with technical training, staffing support, equipment, and communication efforts. USAID's support bolsters the interim government's abilities to effectively operate and interact with their constituents, despite the increased repression from the illegitimate regime, our assistance has enabled increased participation with legitimate officials. Our commitment to democracy and the rule of law is central to our engagement in the hemisphere. In addition to the Guaido administration and National Assembly, USAID strongly supports those who defend human rights and serve as civil society watchdogs. Our help each year to dozens of NGOs has been critical to investigating and documenting rampant corruption, flagrant electoral fraud, and wide-ranging human rights abuses. With our support, independent news outlets are able to better operate so they can share information with Venezuelans through online reporting, radio, and other forms of communications. USAID is also helping democratic forces plan for the day the Maduro regime gives way to freedom and authentic change can take place. When change does occur, funding through our bilateral agreement will position us to be ready to expand our work quickly into other sectors. For the time being, though, the effort continues to support the people of Venezuela. The Guaido administration, the National Assembly, scores of NGOs and activists who bravely continue their struggle despite repression and despite the very difficult situations on the ground. 
One critical step must be taken for a free and prosperous Venezuela. The world must continue to pressure Maduro to relinquish control and allow for democratic change. This includes truly free elections, not the, the rigged so-called elections Maduro is planning for in December. Venezuelans have suffered long enough under the brutality of Nicolas Maduro. We look forward to the day when we can celebrate with all Venezuelans as they meet their potential as a free, prosperous, and democratic society. And thank, thank you today for the invitation to testify. I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. We'll, we'll do a round of questioning now. I'm going to start briefly and then turn it over to Senator Menendez. Um, you, you mentioned these elections that are coming up. Uh, it's my under, Mr. Abrams, this question is for you. It's my understanding uh, that uh, Maduro has taken a uh, page out of the Iranians' book where they have an election commission that decides who can run and who can't run. Uh, anything that happens like that, of course, immediately uh, uh, takes away any legitimacy that the election would have. And it's, uh, I think it's important that, the, that this be highlighted and that, uh, uh, that people understand this. I mean, if you can pick your opponent, there's no question how the, uh, or opponents, there's no question how the, how the election's going to come out. Your thoughts? Uh, Mr. Chairman, I agree with that. They've, they've uh, prevented a large number of people from running. They've taken over several of the largest political parties, simply replaced the leadership of the parties, and given all the parties' assets, offices, the party symbols, uh, to people that the regime chooses. They're going to hold this election, they say, December 6th. There are today in Venezuela zero voting machines. Zero. So how they're going to do this, uh, you know, I think defies comprehension. And like the 2018 presidential election, this is going to be another fraud. Thanks. I, I think that's uh, I think that's critical for everybody to understand. And I, I, I also think that we need to underscore that this is not an election at all. It's just a uh, facade that, uh, that has no legal or practical uh, uh, authority whatsoever. Uh, secondly, uh, you, you didn't mention the military's role in all of this. Uh, we all know there's a robust military uh, in Venezuela. I'm told there's 3,500 generals. I'm not exactly sure how you, how you uh, discipline a military that's got 3,500 generals. But um, you, your thoughts on where they are and where they're going? There are um, more generals in Venezuela than in all the NATO countries put together. <laughs> I think there's a lot of uh, worry in many ranks of the military about the condition of the country. You know, you're a soldier, you're an officer, you have a mother and father, aunts, uncles, cousins, you see how they're living, you know what's happening to the country. But you're being spied on by these thousands of Cuban intelligence agents. Uh, and at the very top, you've got a lot of people who are quite corrupt and are profiting from this regime. Uh, so the military has, at least up to now, um, been unwilling to separate itself at all from what the regime is doing to the country. And it's tragic because a democratic Venezuela is going to need a professional military. Uh, they have a lot of security problems that they're going to need to deal with. Uh, our hope, of course, would be that they would uh, uh, try to reestablish the honor of the military and distance themselves from the crimes of this regime. Thank you much. Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Abrams, on, on Sunday, uh, Venezuela's opposition coalition announced that it will not participate in Maduro's fraudulent uh, undemocratic legislative elections. 
Yet this decision carries uh, implications for Venezuela's currently democratically elected National Assembly and the government of interim President Juan Guaido. Venezuela's beleaguered constitution to the degree that it still exists under Maduro's dictatorship calls for a new National Assembly to be seated the first week of January 2021. So I'm deeply concerned that Maduro will use the moment to fully consolidate his criminal dictatorship in Venezuela. Given the opposition's decision not to participate in Maduro's fraudulent legislative elections, how do you assess uh, the impact, the interim, how will this impact the interim government in the first week of January when there's supposed to be a new National Assembly? What's the implications for U.S. policy and our recognition of the Guaido government? <coughs> Thanks, Senator. Um, Juan Guaido occupies the office of interim president because it was vacant uh, when, uh, the, as a result of the May 2018 corrupt and fraudulent presidential elections. In our view, nothing changes on January 5th with respect to Juan Guaido. That office of the presidency is still vacant because of the 2018 election. It cannot be that Maduro can improve his situation, legally or practically, by holding another corrupt and fraudulent election. So in our view, the constitutional president of Venezuela today and after January 5th, 2021, is Juan Guaido. And the National Assembly that, that uh, has been meeting uh, until about, I guess, about March, um, is not going to be able to meet. I think you can expect that if they tried to meet, everybody in it would be arrested by this regime. So I do think that there is the danger that uh, Maduro is going to be able to shut down the operations of any kind of independent National Assembly. But he will not change the legal status, I think, uh, for many, many countries around the world, and especially for us. Well, let me ask you about that. What, what efforts are we taking with our international partners to push back both against Maduro's undemocratic elections and in their continuing recognition of Guaido after January, assuming this plays out the way we envision it? Uh, well, on the question of recognition of Guaido and on the recognition of this fraudulent parliamentary election, uh, we have been discussing this with lots of partners. There are about 60 countries that have recognized uh, Guaido, and I do expect that all of them, and we will be in touch with any we haven't been yet, will continue to recognize him and will not recognize this fraudulent election. Well, I hope that there's a more robust uh, engagement with our international partners because uh, my personal sense of conversations I've had is that it's fraying. And I think we can ill afford that uh, at the end of the day. Let me, let me turn to um, uh, illegal mining and what I call blood gold. Uh, as Venezuela crisis deteriorates, uh, there's growing evidence that violent groups are competing for control of the country's mineral resources, which has resulted in a boom of illegal gold mining, that uh, blood gold industry is destroying vast areas of the Amazon rainforest, fueling human rights abuses, particularly among indigenous populations, and generating illicit income for illegal armed groups that threaten the stability of the country and the region. What specific steps is the United States taking, along with other international actors, to ensure that companies that purchase 
sell, and trade gold that are being extracted in this way are following regulations and not unwittingly supporting illegal gold mining operations in Venezuela. Senator, there is more illegal mining, and the July 15th report of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights has a whole section on the Arco Minero. Um, what we've been doing is following every single case we can find of the shipment of gold out of Venezuela and the purchase of gold by anybody. And as we find it, we go after both the country and the company. And in a number of cases we've gone out, we've gone to governments and said, this is happening in your territory and you've got to prevent it. And we've been successful. And we find, for example, people doing this last year have now stopped. But there's more of it now. And so we're stepping up our activities, we being the State Department and the Treasury Department, to go after every single case of this we find. Well, I'd be interested to know if you need any other uh, uh, legislative or regulatory assistance to do this, because obviously a lot is getting out, uh, and the country's national patrimony is being used in a way that is so corrupt uh, and so pervasive against its own people. Final question, if I am, Mr. Chairman. Um, does the Trump administration have the authority to grant TPS to eligible Venezuelans? The authority, yes. Do you agree that it would not be safe to deport Venezuelans back to Maduro's dictatorship at this point in time? Yes, and we are not doing that. So then why hasn't the president designated Venezuela for TPS? I think the answer to that question is some court decisions that have, in essence, removed the T. That is, that it, it seems irreversible now, and I think that makes for some reluctance to do it. So what I, I, don't, I don't think court decisions can undermine the statutory realities of TPS. Uh, it depends upon how one undoes TPS. Uh, so it just seems to me that we applaud Colombia, we applaud Ecuador, we applaud all these countries that have taken millions of people, and we can't even give a temporary protected status to those Venezuelans who are already here. That's not leadership. It's not sending a global message that what we ask others to do, we are willing to do ourselves. Well, we are not deporting Venezuelans back to Venezuela, Senator. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear that, but at the end of the day, they are in an indefinite limbo in their lives here. There's no reason for that when you have a process that can give you a temporary protected status give you a pathway forward to regularize your life while you're waiting for the moment to return to your country. I just, I just don't get it. The aversion to this is beyond, beyond the imagination. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Uh, and Mr. Abrams, I want to join in Senator Menendez's uh, invitation to you. If you need statutory assistance uh, regarding the illegal gold, or oil for that matter, I think we're all in. Uh, these, these countries and these dictators uh, survive because they have a flow of cash, and that cash comes from those products. So I think Senator Menendez and I would be glad to join in, uh, in any efforts uh, to assist you legislatively. Uh, Senator Paul. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Abrams. Without a doubt, Venezuela is a socialist nightmare. It's indeed a vivid indictment of the economic system of socialism. It's appalling that a country like Venezuela that sits atop more oil than Saudi Arabia is in such a dire state that people actually eat their pets. No one disputes the disaster that is Venezuelan socialism, 
However, when it comes to regime change, the U.S. track record is less than stellar. It has been largely ignored that the possible replacement for Maduro, Guaido, is also a socialist. His political party is recognized by the Socialist International. My fear is that even if you get a kinder, gentler form of socialism, it's still socialism, and the results will be similar, economic malaise and economic disaster. What do you say as to replacing one socialist with another in Venezuela? I don't think the main problem in Venezuela is that one party or another is a member of the Socialist International, which a lot of uh, partners of ours in Europe are and have been. It's that it's a vicious, brutal, murderous dictatorship. And that's the real reason that uh, we're engaged there. I it guess has driven that, but, five million people out of the country. I guess that response sort of uh, somehow alleviates the stigma of socialism from being a problem, you know, that socialism isn't the problem there. And I guess many others who've watched socialism through the years have argued that you really can't have a kinder, gentler form of socialism, that what happens with democratic socialism is that when you want to own the, when you want to have the state own the means of production or when you want to have the state own property, that ultimately it devolves into a cronyistic system, that what Chavez and Maduro started out as is not what it ended up as. When you have a more complete form of socialism, as socialism evolves, that perhaps authoritarianism is a side effect of socialism. You know, when Batista was rooted out, you know, he was a so-called cronyist or whatever. There were people who supported Castro, many well-intended people supported Castro in the beginning. And it turned out Castro wasn't any better than Batista, but was actually probably worse than Batista. Um, so I think that we ought to be careful with this. And I think that uh, discounting that socialism has anything to do with it is really discounting an economic nightmare that has happened in Venezuela and saying it's just because you got bad socialists. If we had better socialists, we wouldn't have so much of a problem. Do you think that the U.S. government has the, uh, or the president has the right to uh, uh, military, militarily bring about regime change in Venezuela without the authority of Congress? That's not our policy. Do you think the president has the right to do that? I think the president has the right to conduct the foreign policy of the United States under the Constitution, and we certainly would like to see a democratic Venezuela. Sounds like a non-answer, but I mean, the question is, do you believe that the president has the right to do it without congressional authority? This is a very important constitutional question. Also, if the answer is, that socialism's not the problem. We think one socialist is a little bit more benign than another socialist, and we think the president has the right to do it, we could very much be involved in this. And the reason why this is important and why the discussion of regime change is important is that President Trump gets it more than almost anybody else that the Iraq war, which I know you were a big proponent of, was an utter disaster that in getting rid of one bad person, we were left with something maybe even worse, and that is the, the vacuum, the chaos, and the terrorism that comes from having no government. This happened again in, in Libya. So the real question of whether or not we want to always think we know what's best for another country and we're going to replace one leader with one less bad is an important one. Do you still believe that the Iraq war was uh, a, uh, something that, that you would support today? You're, you're, you still think the Iraq war was a good idea? Senator, I haven't thought about the Iraq war in years because I'm in this job trying <laughs> to deal like with Sounds like another non-answer, but it'd be nice to know if the president had people around him who actually agreed with him. The president thinks it's a worse public policy decision of the last generation 
that it led to a vacuum that actually led to chaos and more terrorism, but also led to more of the emboldenment of Iran. So the same hawks that wanted to go after Hussein now want to go after Iran, but now Iran is worse because Hussein is gone. So see, one thing leads to another, and there are unintended consequences. And I think the discussion of regime change is an important one, and I think we should not so casually dismiss socialism as being the problem in Venezuela. Well, I'm not casually dismissing it, and I think that it is a very bad economic policy. But we've had allies. I mean, England has had socialist governments. France has had socialist governments. Germany has had socialist governments. They were allies of ours throughout the Cold War. That was not the problem as long as they were Democrats. Whether they pursue a terrible economic policy is essentially theirs to decide because it's their country. The problem with Venezuela is that it has a murderous, corrupt regime that is having an impact not only inside, but on all the neighbors. And the question is, is whether murderous thugs are an accident of history or whether they are a consequence of socialism. Why does it seem that time in, time again, socialism leads to autocracy? And that is an important thing, because if you get a benign democratic socialism, how long does that last till it devolves into authoritarianism? I think it's a question worth asking. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Paul. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for being here. Um, as you know, Ambassador Abrams, foreign powers like Russia, China, Cuba, Iran, and Turkey have not only publicly supported the Maduro regime, but through a network of shell corporations and um, sanction evasion schemes, they've significantly enriched Maduro and his cronies while ordinary Venezuelans continue to suffer. So, I know that a number of sanctions have been taken in response to illegal activities stemming from adversaries like Russia, Cuba, and Iran. But Turkey, on the other hand, is engaged in these same activities as a NATO ally. Now, Venezuelan government associates have established numerous front and shell companies in Turkey. For example, um, and I may not be pronouncing this correctly, Grupo IVX Enchant, a tiny Turkish company tied to Maduro has capital of just $1,775 and no refineries, yet it was responsible for 8% of Venezuela's oil exports in 2019. So given what's going on with Turkey, isn't there more that we should do to disrupt President Erdogan and Turkey's support of Maduro and his those corrupt links? Yes, Senator. Uh <clears throat> it is a real problem. Uh, Turkey is not doing in Venezuela what the Russians or the Cubans are doing. The presence is not so great. But they're lending themselves uh, to this kind of corrupt activity. Also gold. We see a lot of gold passing through Turkey. Uh, we saw this earlier this year, some of these front companies develop in Mexico. But with the help of the Mexican government, we are shutting them down. We just haven't had that kind of help from the Turkish government. Well, that's why I ask if, if we don't think there's more that sh we should be thinking about in terms of sanctioning Turkey. Well, we keep trying. Uh, we, again, as the Treasury, OFAC, we keep going after companies as we find them. And so can you give us a list of those companies that we've gone after in Turkey that, um, and what success we've had at doing that? I can't today, but I'd be happy to uh, supply it to you. Uh, and uh, some of it for investigations that are ongoing, 
Uh, we either wouldn't be able to do it, or we'd do it, or we'd do it in a classified form, but be happy to do it. Um, I think that would be helpful, Mr. Chairman, if perhaps that could yeah. be something that's shared with the whole committee. I, I agree with that. Uh, Mr. Abrams, if you could provide that list, what you can that isn't classified for the record, uh, that would be uh, much appreciated. And Senator Sheen's points are well taken as it relates to Turkey. Now, during the last hearing that the committee held on Venezuela in March of 2019, we discussed the impact that this conflict is having on women. Um, and several people have mentioned that already. Then USAID Administrator Mark Green stated that the disproportionate humanitarian effects on women and girls is the most dark and gloomy part of Venezuela's crisis. So can you, either one of you, give us an update on the humanitarian assistance efforts that we have undertaken with respect to women and girls, um, particularly given what's happening with the coronavirus? Yes, thank you, ma'am. And so this is this is an issue we are tracking closely, sort of across the region, uh, just stemming from the pandemic and its impacts to different countries. But specific to Venezuela, USA promotes these type of promotion activities that are streamlined through all of our programming. To date, we've we focused on the most immediate life-saving assistance first and foremost, primarily health and food, um, and the prevention of, of gender-based violence and response to gender-based violence. Violence is, uh, as I stated, sort of covered under the protection activities writ large throughout all of our programming. It's, something, it's an area, given the pandemic, we're looking to, to step up and make sure that within Venezuela and throughout the region, we're, we're more directly addressing. But it is, it's part of all of our programming. And, and with regards to, to inside of Venezuela, as access becomes available to funding, uh, additional funding, we will, we will make sure to incorporate this further. Um, and again, just to just highlight the number, to date, the U.S. government has provided $611 million in humanitarian assistance. And, and so portions of that funding impact this. And um, it's an area I know we need to do more, and we're, we're working on that. So when you say we need to step up, are you suggesting that more money needs to be provided? We need to be engaging in different kinds of activities? We need to be working more with the international community. What do you mean specifically when yes, you say so, step so up? So we're already working aggressively with the international community on this. In fact, there, there are some specific programs that are funded through USAID that directly um, address this. What I mean by that is make sure that as we're pushing this, as we're seeing these trends emerge because of the pandemic, we're having the discussions with our implementing partners to ensure it's not just a part of their program and, and sort of something they do as one of sort of a number of things, but it's, it's an area of focus that they're taking seriously, that they're actually coming up with new ways to address it. And I can speak to COVID writ large across the region. Um, we are. We have already had conversations to ensure that we have specific programs in place that are addressing gender-based violence um, and helping women and minorities who are being uh, targeted. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Sheen. Uh, Senator Romney. Mr. Abrams, thank you. Both of our uh, individuals this morning who've testified appreciate your work and your perspective. Um, Mr. Abrams, um, in June, uh, the president took a surprising tack with regards to Mr. Uh, Guido. Um, he said Guido was elected. I think that it wasn't necessarily, I, I think that I wasn't necessarily in favor, but I said some people that liked it, some people didn't. I was okay with it. I don't think it was, you know, I don't think it was very meaningful one way or the other. Um, and 
and I think that was a surprise and that the policy of our nation uh, had been pretty consistently saying that we recognized Mr. Gato as the president of the country and someone who we firmly supported. There really is only one voice that matters when it comes to speaking um, the nation's foreign policy. The State Department and all of us can express our various views, and I'm sure those have some weight, but to the world and to the people of Venezuela, it's the president who um, uh, who speaks for the nation. Um, perhaps he shares Senator Paul's comment that, that all, all socialists are pretty much the same, and whether it's uh, Gato or whether it's uh, Maduro doesn't make a big difference. But what is the posture of the United States of America uh, with regards to uh, the, the presidency of Venezuela? And, and will that ever be communicated to the world unless the president expresses it himself? The policy, Senator, is that we recognize Juan Guaido as the interim president of Venezuela and have since January 5th, 2019. We continue to do so. <clears throat> we will continue to do so after these corrupt uh, parliamentary elections. Um, and we, we try to say that in many different ways every day. Yes, and my, my question was, until the president says it, will that ever break through? Well, I think the president has said it, and you remember the State of the Union when uh, Guaido not only met with the president, but was the, uh, the guest in the balcony there and got happily bipartisan uh, ovations. So I think the president has said it. Um, without Russia and Venezuela uh, supporting, and Cuba supporting uh, Maduro, do you believe he would be able to hang on? I do not. I think those uh, maybe 2,500 Cuban intelligence agents <clears throat> and the Russian veto in the Security Council uh, are, are really important in keeping Maduro in power. What then could we do with regards to Russia, China, um, Cuba? Uh, if, if we were really serious about removing Maduro and seeing a democratically elected president in that country, what, what would we be doing? Would, would the president not be having this uh, on a call with, with Putin and, and Xi Jinping? And, and would we not be uh, blockading perhaps uh, a fuel coming in from, from Cuba into Venezuela? What, what actions could we take if we were very serious about, about removing Maduro and seeing uh, 5 million people uh, be able to return to their homes? There's a... <clears throat> a spectrum, Senator, and I suppose at the far end of it, you could blockade Venezuela. That is an act of war, but you could do it, and you could prevent ships from going in and coming out. Uh, we have obviously chosen not to do that. We do talk to the Chinese about this. We talk to the Russians about this. I don't think either of them has very great confidence in Maduro. Uh, if you look at the amount of money China has put into Venezuela this year, it's basically zero. Uh, they're backing away. The Russians are taking money out of Venezuela, trying to get their, their money back, but they maintain the political protection and the protection in the UN. Given their, um, uh, your expression of, of their timid um, uh, support for Maduro, would it not be possible for us to exert sufficient uh, uh, incentive for them to, to walk away from him as opposed to continuing to, to support him in a, such a substantial way? Were this not a, a high priority for our nation? Are, are we so incapable of, of a use of soft power 
to, to get uh, two nations, which you suggest don't have a great commitment to Maduro, to back away? Well, it hasn't worked so far. Uh, I think from the point of view of, uh, of, of uh, Putin, you know, this is a kind of freebie uh, in the sense that it isn't costing him any money now. And obviously, he's got a kind of base in South America. But as you start to weigh, what are the things you would actually do in that bargain with Putin? Uh, we have not found any, um, anything attractive. Yeah, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. I'll return the time. But your point that it's a freebie for Russia, I, Russia, I would suggest that it's in our interest to make sure it's not a freebie for Russia. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Romney, for returning the time. We'll put it in a bank, but it's a minus seven. <laughs> Is there a per you know, minute charge for that or per second charge, Mr. Chairman? We'll talk. All right. Uh, Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, you know, I feel like it's Groundhog Day in this committee. We've been told by the administration, frankly, multiple administrations for years, that Russia's support for Assad and Iran's support for Assad is tepid. It's fragile. It's just a matter of time before he falls. The truth of the matter is they were always willing to do more than we were in Syria to protect their interests. And that is likely the exact same case here in Venezuela. And so our policy has been um, misguided by fundamentally flawed assumptions from the beginning. Um, and I have deep respect for both of you uh, who are testifying before this committee. Um, but we just have to be clear that our Venezuela policy over the last year and a half has been an unmitigated disaster. And if we aren't honest about that, then we can't self-correct. Um, we have to admit that our big play, recognizing Guaido right out of the gate and then moving quickly to implement sanctions, just didn't work. It didn't. All it did was harden Russia and Cuba's play in Venezuela and allow Maduro to paint Guaido as an American patsy. And a lot of us warned that this might happen. Um, we could have used the prospect of U.S. recognition or sanctions as leverage. We could have spent more time trying to get European allies and other partners on the same page. We could have spent more time trying to talk to or neutralize China and Russia early before we backed them into a corner, a corner from which they are not moving. They are not moving. But all we did was play all our cards on day one, and it didn't work. And it's just been an embarrassing mistake after mistake since. First, we thought that getting Guaido to declare himself president would be enough to topple the regime. Then we thought putting aid on the border would be enough. Then we tried to sort of construct a kind of coup in April of last year, and it blew up in our face when all the generals that were supposed to break with Maduro decided to stick with him in the end. We undermined Norway's talks last summer, and then this March we released a transition framework that frankly is almost a carbon copy of the very one that was in front of the parties last year. And now, after wasting all of this time, um, we are stuck with elections about to happen. That is, we have talked about today, Guaido and the opposition refuse to enter. And then we are going to be in a position where we are recognizing someone as the leader of Venezuela who doesn't control the government, who doesn't run the military, and who doesn't even hold office. Now, we don't do this in other places, right? We, we, nobody knows the name of the guy who finished second in the 2018 Russian presidential election. We don't recognize that person as the president of Russia, no matter how corrupt those elections are, because doing that makes us look weak and feckless if we can't actually do anything about it. And so I do think it's important to, to ask some questions about what comes next. And I might have 
time for only one, but I have two. The first is this question of what do we do with Guaido? So you're saying we're gonna recognize him because he is the former leader of the National Assembly. But you know there are, Mr. Abrams, there are contests for supremacy within the opposition. What happens if six months from today, someone else emerges as a more legitimate voice for the opposition than Juan Guaido? What criteria do we use to recognize someone new, or is Juan Guaido going to be the recognized leader of Venezuela permanently, no matter how conditions change on the ground? I think the situation with Guaido is unique because he is the president of the National Assembly. They're gonna have a corrupt election now, uh, which no one, I think, no democratic country is going to recognize. And that corrupt election, that fraud, is not gonna change Guaido's status. And I don't think you'll find anybody in the, in the opposition leadership who will claim otherwise. Also, I'd just like to say, Senator, you know, I, that was not I a vote, that was not the vote you, of confidence in the policy just, that I would have you liked. You dispute but, my premise. I, 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 will stipulate yes. to that. I will stipulate to that. Okay. I, I, think that, I, I think that that's a fallacy to suggest that no one is going to step forward and replace Guaido. And I, I think we have to sort of at least think through the criteria by which we may recognize somebody else. Let me ask a quick second question, which is this. Um, Guaido's uh, prerequisites for participating in the election did not include Maduro stepping down. And yet you've said as recently as a week ago that the only thing we want to talk to Maduro about is his removal from power. Um, are we open, the United States of America, uh, to a discussion with Maduro in which he stays in power um, as a transition to an election that is actually free and fair? Because frankly, even if he's not in power, there's no guarantee that, that his allies couldn't rig an election. So why aren't we open to that as a possible path forward? Because we do not believe that a free election in Venezuela is possible with Maduro in power, in control of the army, in control of the police, in control of the colectivo gangs, with two or 3,000 Cuban intelligence agents. We do not see that that is a possibility of a free election. I, I would say Guaido doesn't share that view because his preconditions for taking part in the elections did not um, require the removal of Maduro. And it is also not clear that even without Maduro, there could be a free and fair uh, election. And so you, I, I think this is just a prescription to get stuck uh, in a downward spiral of American policy from which we cannot remove ourselves. We've got to be more nimble, more creative, more open to solutions by which we could get to an election, uh, even with Maduro there as a, trans, as a transition. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. If I could, time. could I respond for just a few seconds? Go ahead. You know, we presented this framework for a democratic transition precisely to show what we would like to see happen. And the, in the framework, both sides, the Chavistas and the opposition in the National Assembly, elect a transitional government. Each side has veto power. Guaido and Maduro would not participate in the transitional election. Both could run for president in a future free presidential election. We thought we were putting out, and many, many countries who have looked at this have said, this is a, this is a positive formula. And we showed the way to the lifting of US sanctions. And I would just say again, just under 60 countries support Guaido. So the notion that we have done this alone and without international support, Senator, I would submit is not accurate. Thank you. Senator Rubio. 
On that point, uh, thank you both for being here. H how many countries in Latin America recognize Guaido as the legitimate interim president? Uh, every country except, uh, I think, Cuba, Argentina, Mexico. I imagine Nicaragua. Yeah, Nicaragua, sorry. So let me ask you, um, we didn't just pull Guaido out of the air and say this is who we recognize. The basis of our support for Juan Guaido as the in legitimate interim president and the basis for why all these other countries have also recognized him is because he is the democratically elected member of the National Assembly who the democratically elected members of the National Assembly have made the president of that assembly that under the Venezuelan constitution fills the role of president when there is a vacancy in that office. Is that not the reason why we recognized him? That's correct. We did not choose Juan Guaido. The Constitution of Venezuela chose Juan Guaido. As interim president until the next transition, free and fair election. Yes. Because um, I also heard a comment earlier by one of my colleagues, I believe uh, Senator Paul, who's no longer here, but, but he said that our policy of replacing Maduro with Guaido, that, that is not the policy of the United States. The policy of the United States is to try to promote uh, a transition to free and fair elections where the people of Venezuela choose who the next president of Venezuela is. That's exactly right. Um, let me ask you another thing you hear a lot about as he's still clinging to power. Uh, first of all, I think it's fair to say that we're not dealing, the Maduro regime is not really a government in the, in the, in the traditional sense of the word. It's an organized crime ring. Is that a, a fair characterization? <clears throat> it is, and I think it's what distinguishes it from the many Latin American cases of military juntas, which were replaced by democratic governments. And as a criminal enterprise, basically what it's comprised of, these individuals that allow Maduro to remain, quote, unquote, in power, much of the country, they, they don't really exercise much government writ any longer. They're heavily focused in Caracas. But, but to the extent that they are in control of national territory, people that allow them to do it, the reason why they do it is not, it's fair to say most of them is not either ideological or personal affinity towards Mr. Maduro. It is actually the fact that these people have become very rich uh, and, 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 have been, and want to maintain power that allows them to keep their money and their personal freedom. Would you not say that is the glue that holds together this criminal enterprise? I would, <clears throat> I would Senator, and I think that explains part of the difficulty in uh, getting them out. And the reason why we can't, they won't leave is not because they love Maduro. They, some of them want to replace him. The, the reason why they can't leave is because right now, he's their best bet, at least for this moment. In essence, of all the options before them, they have, this is the one that most guarantees them the power, for the time being, to protect their wealth and their freedom. Senator, their personal I that, freedom. I think, I think that's right. And I think, again, it explains the great difficulty of Venezuela. Is it not also fair to say that one of the things that a lot of those folks in there are probably thinking about is, let's see what happens uh, moving forward in American politics. Maybe there'll be a change in policy. To me, this is an issue that's been pretty strong uh, bipartisan support. I think it's a bad assumption on their part, but there are some that, that are sort of standing around saying, well, let's wait and see because maybe after the elections, there'll be a change in, in policy that will uh, take the pressure off of us. That's our calculation, too, that Maduro is, uh, to some extent, watching and waiting. I think it's a bad bet. Um, I don't think he has very many supporters here that are in favor of him remaining in power. The last point is pretty straightforward question. You've answered it many different ways and times, but I wanted to reiterate once more. Uh, 
whether it's the president or anybody else, when they discuss talking to Maduro, that means a negotiation with Maduro about how he leaves his current position and allows for there to be free and fair elections. We are not discussing talks. We are not open to talks about how he remains in power. That's right. <clears throat> we are open to talks about his leaving power. Does he want to stay in Venezuela? Does he want to leave Venezuela? Uh, what happens to the sanctions? That sort of thing. Uh, for him and other people, those discussions we're willing to have. But a negotiation about his remaining in power in Venezuela, we are not going to have. And my last question is, we see them buying all of this gasoline or whatever from, from the Iranians, one of the most oil-rich countries in the world, and no longer has any refining capacity. And, and that's been the case for a long time, way even before these san sanctions took hold. How are they paying for it? They're paying Iran with gold, as far as we are aware. From both their reserves and from Ill illegal mining. Yeah, the, the, the uh, gold reserves, the value seems to be rising because the price of gold is rising. But we are able to see sometimes the movement of gold out, which we think is to Iran. And they're trying to refill it in part through current gold mining in the Arco Minero. So in essence, they are depleting their national, their, their, their national gold reserves to buy time to provide even very limited amounts of fuel. They are. Thank you. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to the witnesses. This is a, this is a very hard problem. And, I, and I, um, I think the situation we all acknowledge in Venezuela is disastrous uh, from a humanitarian standpoint. I think the Trump administration has gotten some things right, and I think the Trump administration has gotten some things wrong. I, I don't think it was easy to get 70 nations to recognize the Guaido government. I think that was a good bit of diplomacy, and I don't think anybody should take for granted that that was simple. And so that's, that I would put in the positive side of the ledger with respect to the efforts. I think the early suggestion that military options were on the table meant that many of the nations that recognized the Guaido government would not also embrace the sanctions that we wanted them to. And I've had conversations with leadership in some of the nations that have been with us on the recognition, but not on the sanction, where they expressed reticence and used that as a reason. But, but fundamentally, I don't think the, the Venezuelan reality you know, is bad because of the United States or bad in spite of the United States. It's, it's a brutal dictatorship. And, it's a dictatorship that's propped up by the, na the world's leading authoritarian nations. And in a way, I almost think Venezuela is like the perfect example to the world. If you want to live under an authoritarian government, take a look. Because you got Iran there, and Russia there, and China there, and Turkey there, and Cuba there. And if, if this is the former government you want, then take a look at what it's done. So what should we do now? There, 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 I, I first think we have to be realistic. One of my concerns has been from the very beginning that from the witness side of the hearing rooms in this committee, we've often heard optimism expressed about what the recognition of Guaido might do, and we're right around the corner from a transition. And it was, it's been interesting to me because when I've had conversations with the Colombians, they've never been optimistic about anything quickly. They're right on the border. They've dealt with Venezuela under so many challenges over so many years. They were never optimistic that a transition would be quick. And so th this is not just a, a Venezuela issue. I think it's an issue that, you know, for a whole series of reasons, including some good ones, we're can do optimistic people. We often overestimate our ability to, to affect the internal reality of a country. And we have to be a little more humble about that. 
So maybe a little humility would be important. Second, the humanitarian challenges. There's now 40 to 50,000 Venezuelans who've crossed the border from Colombia back into Venezuela because when Colombia had to shut down the economy due to COVID, it put so many people in desperate situations that even though they were going to be desperate in Venezuela, they would have a roof there with family. And so you see people crossing back. Um, I am really interested in Colombia. I am really worried about the effect that the Venezuelan reality has on Colombia. And, I, and so I would, I would put as a very top priority, first, you continuing to do everything we can to get humanitarian aid to Venezuelans, and you cited the number, we, we should do even more. Second, do everything we can to protect the hard-won gains that administrations of both parties have made in terms of turning Colombia around, because Colombia, right on the border of Venezuela, offers the antidote. If, if Venezuela stands as the example of you want to live under authoritarians, this is what your life's going to be like. Colombia can offer the opposite. If you embrace democratic norms and work over time, look at the positive arc you can be on. And I think we have an enormous amount invested in that arc that is, that is fragile, that's at risk. And the Venezuelan situation puts it at risk. So I think the the second element of a strong Venezuelan policy, in addition to humanitarian support, needs to be continued support for Colombia. And I want to ask about that in my last minute after I say the third thing. I do think the third thing that would be really important is TPS. I, ec I echo what Senator Menendez said before I came into the room. If our critique is this is a brutal dictatorship and these people are living under intolerably bad conditions, to say all of that and we want to change, but we're, we don't want to let you come into our country, it, it undercuts our message in my view and suggests we're, we're not that worried about them. And I think this is the perfect um, example of how TPS should be used. My question is, tell me how we're doing in Guatemala right now and what more we can do to support that government as they deal with this Venezuelan challenge. Well, thanks, Senator. <clears throat> First, I agree with you um, about the importance of making sure that this multi-decade bipartisan effort in Colombia stays on track. And the Colombians have been, you know, amazing in welcoming now about two million Venezuelans. And you can see the, the burden on the hospital system, the educational system, um, but they're doing it. <clears throat> so I think um, money is part of what we should be doing to help Colombia. And they're doing this, by the way, as they continue, even in the context of COVID, to eradicate COCA. Uh, it, it's really extraordinary, and I think, you know, hats off to President Duque and his government. Uh, so I think we need uh, the bipartisanship to continue. Um, we need political support from the administration, which we have, uh, and we probably need to look again at the aid levels because, uh, you know, we come up with these numbers before this surge of a couple of million Venezuelans into Colombia. And, sir, I would add to that. I completely agree with your comments and, and the special representative. This is an area where we are definitely engaged. We're engaged directly with the Colombians and with, throughout the interagency on both the cocoa eradication, on the Venezuela crisis, and in addition, making sure all of those conversations are connected back to the response to the COVID pandemic. And so we've taken a series of steps from the USAID side to make sure that the pandemic isn't going to wash away the gains that we've made within Colombia. Obviously, the pandemic sets new realities in country to some of the assistance that we have going on there, but we, we're continuing to evaluate our programs, update those to make sure we're at, it's based on the current reality, not where we were six weeks ago, four, four months ago, 
And so we're actively doing that, and we're working closely with the State Department and our agency on all of this. Thank you, Senator Keene. Senator Cruz. <clears throat> thank you, Mr. Chairman. Gentlemen, thank you for your good work, your service, your testimony. Uh, Mr. Abrams, does Maduro survive the year? And what can we do to maximize the chances that the answer to that question is no? Well, we obviously hope he does not <clears throat> survive the year, and we are working hard uh, to make that happen. What needs to happen for that to occur? <clears throat> um, the Venezuelan people have to react against this election. The international support of the, I think it's 59 countries, uh, and we'd hope to add to that, have to reject this election as a complete fraud. Uh, we need more sanctions, personal sanctions of the sort the EU, Canada, the Rio Treaty countries have done, travel restrictions. Here's a case where more is better because they put more pressure on the regime. And we need to continue in the case of uh, particularly the Iran-Venezuela uh, relationship uh, to try to prevent it from growing. So do I understand correctly that Maduro was on a plane, he was ready to leave, he'd given it up, and the Russians called him and convinced him to stay. Uh, is that right? And, and what changed in his calculus that caused him to get off that plane? I don't know if it's right. I've heard several stories about it. One version is it was his wife who left, who actually did leave. Uh, another is that he wasn't on a plane, but he was going to get on a plane, and the Russian ambassador um, met with him and persuaded him, stay, we're behind you. But those are, I don't have firm intelligence of that. Those are different uh, stories. I think, you know, the day will come when he's going to have to make the decision of where he is safest, fleeing to a place like Cuba or Russia, or is he safest staying in Venezuela? Because then uh, we can't extradite him. Now, I would think one of the important questions on that is, is, is where the Venezuelan military lines up, and in particular, their generals and admirals. What, what do we know in terms of the calculus those military leaders are engaging in right now about what's good for their future, what's good for their families, what's good for their country, although I'm not sure with many of them that third question is the, the predominant question. <clears throat> Our impression is they're thinking. Um, some of them are ideologically chavistas, most are not. Uh, some of them are criminals, most are not. Uh, so they're, you know, they're on a spectrum here in how they view that regime. Many are trying to figure out what happens to me. Uh, and it's probably the case, we've heard this from a lot of people, that the opposition has not spoken clearly enough about the questions of uh, guarantees and amnesty and so forth for some behavior. There have been those kinds of amnesties in every country that's gone from dictatorship to democracy in Latin America, for that matter, in Europe, South Africa. Um, so they're thinking about that. And we do try to get messages through uh, to the people in the high command, sometimes publicly saying, look, Venezuela needs a modernized, paid military, and you're not going to get it from Maduro. We need to reestablish the kind of mill-mill relationship we once had. So what more, in terms of carrot and stick, can Congress do and can the administration do 
to change the calculus for the generals and admirals so that they come to the unequivocal conclusion, it is much, much worse for me if Maduro stays in power than if this illegitimate regime is toppled and if instead you have a democratically legitimate government in Venezuela. I actually think the best thing that we, we could do would be a bipartisan expression that this policy is not going to change. It has support in both parties. We are not going to let up on the sanctions. We are not going to let up on the criminal prosecutions. Uh, we're going to stay with it. So this is going to keep on going year after year until this regime is replaced. Well, I think that's a good invitation. And I know this committee has acted in a bipartisan manner before. I, I, I think that would be a very positive thing if this committee were able to come together and, and do that again to make clear uh, that Maduro will have no friends regardless of, of what happens in an election 91 days from now. Uh, let me ask about a different aspect of Venezuela, which is, as you know, for over two years, six Americans and, and five of them from Texas uh, have been imprisoned in Venezuela related to charges manufactured about their work for, for Citgo. Uh, they have missed birthdays, they've missed weddings, they've missed funerals. Uh, they're imprisoned in inhumane conditions. They're subject to abuse. Their, their families continue to live in fear for their health and, and well-being. Uh, last week, two of the men were re-released to house arrest, but a lot more needs to be done. Uh, what is the status of your efforts to make sure that the Sitgo Six are brought home? We're in touch with the families. <clears throat> We're in touch with anyone who is trying to help, and that would include Governor Richardson, who was down there a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we have made, and we continue to make, a, I guess I'd call it a global diplomatic effort uh, with the governments, for example, of Mexico, of Spain, of Argentina, with the Vatican. We keep asking ourselves, who can we go back to? Who's somebody new who has influence in uh, Caracas. What can we do to increase the pressure or the inducements on the regime? Um, moving two to house arrest again is a positive step. We hope that the next step is the other four go to house arrest as a step toward getting home. It's been, it's since 2017, it's getting on to two and a half years now, and they belong home with their families. These men have never had a trial. Thank you very much. Thank you, Senator Cruz. Senator Menendez. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Hodges, 40% uh, of hospitals in Venezuela lack electricity. 70% of hospitals lack uh, access uh, to water. The UN estimates 7 million people in Venezuela are in need of humanitarian assistance, but only able to address 10% of that. What, what are we doing, State Department, USAID, to expand access inside inside Venezuela for organizations seeking to deliver life-saving assistance uh, along the lines with our respect for humanitarian principles of neutrality, impartiality, independence. Are we building on the recent agreement between Guaido and Maduro health officials to support the Pan American Health Organization's work in Venezuela? Is that a one-off deal? Give, I mean, I, I'm very focused on changing, uh, creating democracy in Venezuela, but in the interim, there is humanitarian catastrophe happening. Absolutely, sir. And from a humanitarian assistance perspective, it's less a question in my mind of, 
whether or not we remain committed to the bipartisan support for this issue, as you've all stated, the reality is this is Maduro against the Venezuelan people and the Venezuelan families who are suffering day in, day out. And just to run through some specific fundings about what's inside of Venezuela, as, as, you, as the committee knows, we've provided 128 million support in longer term development programs, but more specifically, 43 million for critical health, water, food assistance. Um, and within that, we've reached- This is inside of Venezuela. In, inside Venezuela, yes, sir. And we have reached 9 million people if we include sort of the totality of our programs within Venezuela. That, inclu that does include vaccination campaigns. But in our strictly day-to-day -day health support, we've reached around 600,000 people. We continue to seek ways to, to do exactly what you're saying, sir. And that is, it's an area where we, we know that more needs to be done. We call on the international community to- uh, What about the Pan-American Health Organization agreement that Guaido and Maduro's uh, people have? Yes, sir. We, we, are, we are supportive of this and, and we're, we're working. Um, as you're aware, we've worked with PAHO, with the State Department and others over the course of the last several months to overcome several obstacles to make sure that the U.S. taxpayer funds that were provided to PAHO would be used in the, the manner that well, they would be I'd like you to follow up with our office to get the totality of what you're doing in this regard. Absolutely, sir, and it's pretty uh, good And important. one other question. Of the $611 million that's been provided for humanitarian assistance in response to the Venezuela crisis, uh, how much is supporting efforts to prevent and respond to gender-based violence? So, sir, I'll have to follow up with a specific figure on that. As I mentioned earlier, all of our programming in, in throughout the region includes uh, aspects that deal with this, but we, um, we don't have specific line items or earmarks designated for gender-based violence. Well, I'd like to know what's being spent because we have a horrific situation uh, where violence against women, girls, uh, LGBTI individuals, persons with disabilities, and we know that women and girls fleeing Venezuela are facing grave threats of sexual, sexual violence and trafficking by armed groups. This committee has a long history uh, of supporting uh, efforts on trafficking against uh, per persons and uh, against, obviously, against their will and human trafficking, uh, sexual trafficking and whatnot. I'd like to know what we're doing in that. Absolutely, part. sir. And we'll, we will get you those specific funding numbers. And it, one, one thing I do want to state here is inside Venezuela, we do have funding that's dedicated to protection. That's protection for all. And with that, that figure, I think, is right under $4 million. But we'll follow up with an exact mm -hmm. figure sort of across all programs. Mr. Abrams, let me ask you a question. I mentioned in my opening statements that the UN has documented over 8,000 extrajudicial killings in the last two years alone within Venezuela. Canada and several countries have mounted evidence of Maduro's regime crimes, crimes against humanity. Under Section 142 of the Vedat Act, which I wrote, when Congress required the State Department to conduct an assessment of the regime's role in potential crimes against humanity, you sent us a report that contained, quote, a list of allegations, a list that failed to include any mention any mention of the UN report. By every standard, that report uh, uh, failed to contribute to an indelible record of the Maduro regime's crimes, a record I know that you and I both agree about. So do you believe a state-sponsored campaign of more than 8,000 murders in two years should be considered a crime against humanity? Uh, yes, Senator. Would you, would you go back to the department and ask them to resubmit Section 142 of the report um, and treat it with the seriousness it deserves. This is a compelling reality. You got a UN document, 8,000 extrajudicial killings. We don't even mention it in our statement. 
and we didn't do anything more than a list of allegations, we can do much better than that. Yes, sir. Now, <clears throat> lastly, I just want to go through a series of things, and you tell me yes or no whether they're the case. We see Colombian guerrillas operating openly across Venezuela in large swaths of ungoverned territory. Is that true? We do, including even in eastern Venezuela. We see a wide range of armed actors profiting from drug trade, illegal gold mining, and human trafficking. Is that true? Yes. We see femicide, sexual violence, trafficking of Venezuelan women and girls reportedly on the rise. Is that true? Yes. We, uh, is it fair to say that uh, Maduro's regime has perpetrated more state-sponsored murders than any Latin American government since the dirty wars of the 70s and 80s? Yes. And we've already, you've already acknowledged the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights report of 8,000 extrajudicial killings as well as grotesque patterns of torture and rape. That's true as well, right? Yes. It's true that 5.2 million Venezuelans have fleed their country, is it not? Yes. Uh, and at the rate it's going, it's possible that more Venezuelans would flee Venezuela than Syrians flee during <clears throat> that horrific war. Yes. Um, it's true that Maduro and his cronies face charges in the United States for drug trafficking and graft? Yes. And that we're dealing with a massive law enforcement challenge in Venezuela. Is that true as well? Yes. And it is also true that, in fact, what we have here is the challenge in a regional context, while Colombia has been a great neighbor and a good hemispheric leader, it has consequences. It has consequences to Colombia's stability if, in fact, the, the demand continues several million to smaller countries like Ecuador and others. Isn't that the potential for regional instability if this continues to hemorrhage? Yes. Well, if I look at all of that, it sounds to me that, uh, that Venezuela is a clear and present danger to the United States. To the United States and to its, to its neighbors. So in my mind, if all of that rises to a clear and present danger to the United States, then we would be far more serious in our engagement. We would be following and sanctioning the Turkish companies that are making it profitable for Maduro to benefit. We would be proactively seeking out the transfers of oils that are going to Cuba, which is why Cuba is keeping several thousand uh, of its security agencies uh, around Maduro to mm. prop him up. We would be sanctioning Russian companies that specifically are providing assistance to uh, the Maduro regime inside of it. And we would use, to take a, a page from Senator Murphy, clearly we would be engaging uh, with the Russians and Chinese uh, as well as the Turks and others in ultimately making it something of value to them to undermine Maduro. Because right now they are propping him up and they see no consequence to them <clears throat> of keeping him propped up. In our own hemisphere, in our front yard, to have a clear and present danger to the United States is pretty amazing. There's a lot more that should be done here. And I just fear that at the end of the day, we are on autopilot, uh, and that autopilot isn't going to get us to where we want. Senator, I'd only uh, respond that we have already done and are doing many of the things that you've mentioned. It was our sanctions on Rosneft that got it 
out of Venezuela. It was our move against Greek ship, Greek-owned ships that turned them away from bringing Iranian gasoline to Venezuela. We've sanctioned over a thousand different people and entities, so we are doing this. Uh, it has not had the impact that you and the members of the committee, and of course all of us, wanted to have, which is the restoration of democracy in Venezuela yet. Well, you know, I, I would engage with the Spanish who seem to be a problem in helping us in this regard. Uh, you know, uh, they, they have influence with other countries in the hemisphere. I think we, 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 we have, I, I could lay out for you a dozen different initiatives that if we're really serious and focused on getting rid of Maduro and restoring democracy to Venezuela and stability to the region as a result of the hemorrhaging that's going on, I mean, the lawlessness that is taking place in Venezuela is alarming. Even if Maduro leaves, you're going to have a real challenge at the end of the day. So yes, there is bipartisan support here to, to get us to where we need to be, but some of us have a sense that, again, we're on autopilot, and we are not engaging in ways and with others in order to bring this to a successful conclusion, one that I know we both share in terms of a vision, but one which I honestly say I think we have different, uh, different views. And I appreciate the chairman's uh, uh, willingness to give you a second time. Thank, thank you, Senator Menendez. Uh, good points uh, all along. I'm, I, however, do question whether or not the, either the Russians, the Chinese, the Cubans, or anyone else that's engaged there are going to listen to us as far as uh, uh, trying to convince them that, uh, that it's in their best interest to leave when they enjoy putting a stick in their eye. Uh, nonetheless, I think uh, perhaps, you, you've made some good suggestions, uh, I think perhaps some bipartisan legislation uh, uh, urging the kinds of things that you've, you've uh, laid out uh, might be appropriate. And I, 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 I really think that uh, everybody's pulling the wagon the, the, the same here. And uh, uh, I, I think perhaps some bipartisan legislation in that regard, and I'll be happy to join in, in that regard. Uh, Senator Murphy or Senator Keene, anything else for the good of the order? Uh, one. One. Okay. There we go. Uh, just one additional uh, question. Much of our policy over the course of 2019 was predicated on the idea that we could force a fissure between Maduro and military leadership. And in fact, the um, episode in April in which we had hoped that there would be a substantial break um, didn't pan out uh, in part because many of those leaders at the last minute appeared to get cold feet. Um, I guess there are just two questions on that. One, how much of our... Uh, if, when you say to Senator Cruz, you hope he's not there at the end of the year, how much of that is predicated on a continued belief that you can split the military leadership away from Maduro? And second, what did we learn from 2019 about the ways in which Maduro has successfully and perhaps surprisingly to American diplomats been able to hold together his leadership um, <clears throat> I think we learned, uh, one, that there are a number of people in the military who, uh, unlike military leaders in previous Latin American dictatorships, are really part of a criminal gang. Uh, and they're going to be extremely difficult to dislodge. 
I think we learned that a lot of people in the military are concerned about the question of guarantees and an amnesty and want to hear about it more quickly. I think we learned that they want more of a sense of what happens after Maduro, which is one of the reasons we put forward the framework uh, to show here's how we see it playing out. I think we learned that um, we need to keep trying to reach out to military leaders uh, in every possible way, directly, indirectly, uh, in public, to get our messages across. And we try to do that. Southcom, for example, tries to do that uh, in their communications as well. I'd also say that we learned that um, there is no substitute for keeping the pressure on. And I would say uh, the last thing policy is, is on autopilot. We are constantly trying to think, who have we not reached out to? Who should we go back to again? What have we not tried that we should try? Uh, because like you, we all want this policy to work, to restore democracy to Venezuela, or better said, to help Venezuelans restore democracy to their own country. Thank you. Thank Thank you. If I may, on that, I just want to add in that USAID is actively engaged here with the State Department on this. We're actively working with civil society groups to raise awareness of the brutality, of the repression, of the, the real-life situation on the ground so that everyone throughout Venezuela can have access to that information. We know the regime doesn't want that information getting out, and we're trying to break through through various different means. And so we're very proud of the work we're doing in this space to, to increase that access to information to the everyday Venezuelans, including folks in the different security sectors. Thank you very much. Uh, well, Mr. Abrams, uh, Mr. Hodges, thank you so much for your service. Uh, I, I think this has uh, been a hearing that will help enlighten Americans to where we are on, on all these very difficult issues. Uh, been appropriate uh, uh, discussion of uh, some of the real knotty problems that we face in trying to do what we all want to see done. For uh, information members, uh, the uh, record will, be will remain open until Thursday. We'd ask witnesses to respond promptly, as, uh, as promptly as possible. Uh, to questions that are raised, and uh, that we had some uh, discussions here about things that would be supplied to the record. We'd, you, we'd ask you, for the record, we'd ask you to do that as promptly as possible. And with that, uh, the committee stands adjourned.